Chapter Twelve of Martin Eden by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve. Early one evening, struggling with a sonnet that twisted all awry the beauty and thought that trailed in glow and vapor through his brain, Martin was called to the telephone. It's a lady's voice, a fine lady's. Mr. Higginbotham, who had called him, jeered. Martin went to the telephone in the corner of the room and felt a wave of warmth rush through him as he heard Ruth's voice. In his battle with the sonnet he had forgotten her existence, and at the sound of her voice his love for her smote him like a sudden blow. And such a voice! Delicate and sweet, like a strain of music heard far off and faint, or better, like a bell of silver, a perfect tone, crystal pure. No mere woman had a voice like that. There was something celestial about it and it came from other worlds. He could scarcely hear what it said, so ravished was he, though he controlled his face, for he knew that Mr. Higginbotham's ferret eyes were fixed upon him. It was not much that Ruth wanted to say, merely that Norman was going to take her to a lecture that night, but that he had a headache, and she was so disappointed, and she had the tickets, and that if he had no other engagement, would he be good enough to take her? Would he? He fought to suppress the eagerness in his voice. It was amazing. He had always seen her in her own house, and he had never dared to ask her to go anywhere with him. Quite irrelevantly, still at the telephone, and talking with her, he felt an overpowering desire to die for her, and visions of heroic sacrifice shaped and dissolved in his whirling brain. He loved her so much, so terribly, so hopelessly. In that moment of mad happiness, that she would go out with him, go to a lecture with him, with him, Martin Eden, she soared so far above him that there seemed nothing else for him to do than die for her. It was the only fit way in which he could express the tremendous and lofty emotion he felt for her. It was the sublime abnegation of true love that comes to all lovers, and it came to him there, at the telephone in a whirlwind of fire and glory. And to die for her, he felt, was to have lived and loved well. And he was only twenty-one, and he had never been in love before. His hand trembled as he hung up the receiver, and he was weak from the organ which had stirred him. His eyes were shining like an angel's, and his face was transfigured, purged of all earthly dross, and pure and holy. Making dates outside, eh? His brother-in-law sneered. You know what that means. You'll be in the police court yet. But Martin could not come down from the height. Not even the bestiality of the illusion could bring him back to earth. Anger and hurt were beneath him. He had seen a great vision and was as a god, and he could feel only profound and awful pity for this maggot of a man. He did not look at him, and though his eyes passed over him, he did not see him, and as in a dream he passed out of the room to dress. It was not until he had reached his own room and was tying his necktie that he became aware of a sound that lingered unpleasantly in his ears. On investigating this sound he identified it as the final snort of Bernard Higginbotham, which somehow had not penetrated to his brain before. As Ruth's front door closed behind him, and he came down the steps with her, he found himself greatly perturbed. It was not unalloyed bliss, taking her to the lecture. 
he did not know what he ought to do. He had seen, on the streets, with persons of her class, that the women took the men's arms. But, then again, he had seen them when they didn't, and he wondered if it was only in the evening that arms were taken, or only between husbands and wives and relatives. Just before he reached the sidewalk, he remembered Minnie. Minnie had always been a stickler. She had called him down the second time she walked out with him, because he had gone along on the inside, and she had laid down the law to him that a gentleman always walked on the outside when he was with a lady. And Minnie had made a practice of kicking his heels whenever they crossed from one side of the street to the other, to remind him to get over on the outside. He wondered where she had got this item of etiquette, and whether it had filtered down from above and was all right. It wouldn't do any harm to try it, he decided, by the time they had reached the sidewalk. And he swung behind Ruth and took up his station on the outside. Then the other problem presented itself. Should he offer his arm? He had never offered anybody his arm in his life. The girls he had known never took the fellow's arms. For the first several times they walked freely, side by side, and after it it was arms around the waist and heads against the fellow's shoulders where the streets were unlighted. But this was different. She wasn't that kind of a girl. He must do something. He crooked his arm next to her, crooked it very slightly and with secret tentativeness, not invitingly but just casually, as though he was accustomed to walk that way. And then the wonderful thing happened. He felt her hand upon his arm. Delicious thrills ran through him at the contact, and for a few sweet moments it seemed that he had left the solid earth and was flying with her through the air. But he was soon back again, perturbed by a new complication. They were crossing the street. This would put him on the inside. He should be on the outside. Should he therefore drop her arm and change over? And if he did so, would he have to repeat the maneuver the next time, and the next? There was something wrong about it, and he resolved not to caper about and play the fool. Yet he was not satisfied with his conclusion, and when he found himself on the inside, he talked quickly and earnestly, making a show of being carried away by what he was saying, so that, in case he was wrong in not changing sides, his enthusiasm would seem the cause for his carelessness. As they crossed Broadway, he came face to face with a new problem. In the blaze of the electric lights he saw Lizzie Connolly and her giggly friend. Only for an instant he hesitated, then his hand went up and his hat came off. He could not be disloyal to his kind, and it was to more than Lizzie Connolly that his hat was lifted. She nodded and looked at him boldly, not with soft and gentle eyes like Ruth's, but with eyes that were handsome and hard, and that swept on past him to Ruth, and itemized her face and dress and station. And he was aware that Ruth looked, too, with quick eyes that were timid and mild as a dove's, but which saw, in a look that was a flutter on and past, the working-class girl in her cheap finery, and under the strange hat that all working-class girls were wearing just then. "'What a pretty girl,' Ruth said a moment later. Martin could have blessed her. Though he said, "'I don't know. I guess it's all a matter of personal taste, but she doesn't strike me as being particularly pretty. Why, there isn't one woman in ten thousand with features as regular as hers. They are splendid. Her face is as clear-cut as a cameo. 
and her eyes are beautiful. Do you think so? Martin queried absently, for to him there was only one beautiful woman in the world, and she was beside him, her hand upon his arm. Do I think so? If that girl had proper opportunity to dress, Mr. Eden, and if she were taught how to carry herself, you would be fairly dazzled by her, and so would all men. She would have to be taught how to speak, he commented, or else most of the men wouldn't understand her. I'm sure you couldn't understand a quarter of what she said if she just spoke naturally. Nonsense! You were just as bad as Arthur when you try to make your point. You forget how I talked when you first met me. I have learned a new language since then. Before that time I talked as that girl talks. Now I can manage to make myself understood sufficiently in your language to explain that you do not know that other girl's language. And do you know why she carries herself the way she does? I think about such things now, though I never used to think about them, and I am beginning to understand much. But why does she? She has worked long hours for years at machines. When one's body is young it is very pliable, and hard work will mold it like putty, according to the nature of the work. I can tell at a glance the trades of many workingmen I meet on the street. Look at me. Why am I rolling all about the shop? Because of the years I put in on the sea. If I'd put in the same years cow-punching, with my body young and pliable, I wouldn't be rolling now, but I'd be bow-legged, and so with that girl. You noticed that her eyes were what I might call hard. She has never been sheltered. She has had to take care of herself. And a young girl can't take care of herself and keep her eyes soft and gentle like—like yours, for example." "'I think you are right,' Ruth said in a low voice. "'And it is too bad. She is such a pretty girl.' He looked at her and saw her eyes luminous with pity, and then he remembered that he loved her and was lost in amazement at his fortune that permitted him to love her and to take her on his arm to a lecture. "'Who are you, Martin Eden?' he demanded of himself in the looking-glass, that night when he got back to his room. He gazed at himself long and curiously. "'Who are you? What are you? Where do you belong?' You belong by rights to girls like Lizzie Connolly. You belong with the legions of toil, with all that is low and vulgar and unbeautiful. You belong with the oxen and the drudges, in dirty surroundings among smells and stenches. There are the stale vegetables now. Those potatoes are rotting. Smell them, damn you, smell them. And yet you dare to open the books, to listen to beautiful music, to learn to love beautiful paintings, to speak good English to think thoughts that none of your own kind thinks, to tear yourself away from the oxen and the Lizzie Connollys, and to love a pale spirit of a woman who is a million times beyond you and who lives in the stars. Who are you and what are you? Damn you! And are you going to make good?" He shook his fist at himself in the glass and sat down on the edge of the bed to dream for a space with wide eyes. Then he got out notebook and algebra, and lost himself in quadratic equations, while the hours slipped by and the stars dimmed, and the gray of dawn flooded against his window. End of chapter 12